morning. Let's pray and ask God's help as we look at his word this morning. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for allowing us to know you through the power of your spirit, making known to us who you are and what you're doing in our lives through your word. We pray this morning as we take some time in your word that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you had a, a friend when you were a kid. Um, no friends. A friend like this. Here's the friend I'm describing. He, uh, he, had, uh, he or she had, uh, had a pool or, uh, or maybe the latest uh, video game system. When I was a kid, that was the brand spanking new Atari 64. Big time. That was huge. Have a friend with the Atari 64. Those had cartridges. The little kids in the room. What's a cartridge? Don't worry about it. Kind of like an eight track, but newer. Maybe uh, he had a basketball court or a swimming pool, like I said. Uh, maybe in high school, they had a, a fast car with a loud stereo, and you didn't have a car. So what this friend is is they have things that you enjoy. Having, but maybe in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this person is not somebody I enjoy being with. However, I can put up with their personality faults and shortcomings because they have a pool or a fast car or an Atari 64. And uh, this is what we encounter in the passage this morning, is the people of God. What does it look like when the people of God aren't? the people of God. And this parable that Pat read for us, the first part of this passage, we discover when the people of God aren't the people of God, it's because they want God's promises, but they don't really, they don't really want God himself. For the people of Israel at this time anyway, God was that friend that had some cool stuff they wanted, but they didn't really want him. They just wanted the stuff. And this is universally true. It's not just true for the people of Jesus' day. When God provides blessing and God provides help and God provides kindness, it becomes really, in some ways, easy to follow God because he's providing benefits that uh, are important to us. And thankfully, God is kind and merciful and gracious and generous and all of those things. But when God calls us to things we don't like or when God calls us to refrain from doing things we do like, it's harder to be motivated intrinsically to follow him. Then we start to wonder, do we really want God or do we just want his promises? Let's take a look again at this parable that Pat read for us. Here's a, a man with a vineyard. And this was a common thing. A person would own a piece of property and they would either plant a crop on it or they would let out the land and someone else would plant a crop on it. In this case, we have a landowner who has a vineyard and he lets it out to tenants. And what the tenants do is they agree to provide to the landowner a certain percentage of the produce of the land. And so what the owner will do is say, you can have control of the vineyard and I expect uh, every year to come and collect, I don't know, say 10 or 15% of whatever the harvest might be. That would be the, the landowner's rent that he would charge uh, to these Tenants. And here we have this vineyard, he let it out, and what he would do is he's sending servants to collect his rent. And you would sort of expect this if you've ever rented anything in your life. 
the owner of the property sort of expects to be paid on a timely basis. Is this a normal thing? And this is what this owner, so is the owner expecting anything outlandish here? Is he being sort of this ogre? No, he's just simply expecting if I let out a vineyard that I would receive the fruit of my ownership of this property. And what's interesting is the tenants keep the vast majority of the harvest. The vast majority of it, the tenants get to keep and enjoy. The owner just expects to receive a little bit. So the first thing we have to understand about this parable is Jesus here is describing very briefly the history of the people of Israel. It's common throughout the Old Testament for God to refer to his people as this vineyard. And it was common for him to refer to the blessings that he would give to his people to be illustrated by a vineyard. The, the people of Israel enjoying the produce of a vineyard, that's wine. It wasn't raisin bran. I don't know what you were thinking. But they, that, that was something that showed they were at peace and there was plenty, that God had provided more than enough. So God is looking at his people at this, as his vineyard, and it all started, this calling out, this establishing this vineyard, it all started with Abraham. And, and Seth mentioned this last week, Genesis chapter 12, one of the key passages in all of our scripture where God makes an unconditional promise to Abraham to bless him and to bless the whole world through him. So this is God establishing this vineyard, his people. And, and who is the owner of this people? Who is the one who has established it? Well, it's God. And he established it by his own promises and his own goodness and his own grace. Abraham was not seeking God. God sought Abraham. And that covenant promise was carried on through Abraham's son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob, who was then called Israel. And then God had told uh, Abraham that your people, your children will end up captive for 400 years. And we discover through Jacob's son, Joseph, that he ends up going to Egypt to save the life of the people of Israel and provide a place for them where they become huge in population. Then God calls them out of captivity into Egypt. And what does God do for them out in the wilderness? He provides for them manna to eat for 40 years and their shoes don't wear out and, and their clothes don't wear out. So God is carefully caring for them. And then finally, he takes them into the promised land. And this promised land is this great land of blessing where the people of Israel experience the blessing of God. And this is God saying, you are my vineyard. You are my people that I have called you out as my own. And, and God is simply saying, would you expect that the owner of the vineyard would receive a return from what is his? And everybody says, well, of course. So God's point here is, then where is my return? Where is the fruit that ought to have come to me. And what is the fruit that God would have expected? This isn't complicated. He doesn't need grapes. God's got plenty of grapes. What does God want? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The fruit that God wanted from his people was a heart devoted to him, expressed in love and grace to one another. That, that's what he wanted, his people to worship him and him alone and then have that love and devotion for God also inform every relationship they have in their community and in their family. Don't harvest to the edge of your to the to the edge of your fields. Don't go over your vineyard twice to make sure the poor and the foreigner have plenty to eat. 
Don't neglect justice. Don't neglect mercy. Don't neglect the, the widow or the fatherless. Make sure that the poor are cared for. God even says to his people, he says, listen, there's going to be so much. No one will ever need to be in need, ever. And the fruit of the people of, of God to God is worship with a heart devoted to him and so trusting in him that they can then have a relationship with one another that's informed by that generosity. How did the people of Israel do in this regard? Have you read your Old Testament? It goes well sometimes. And other times, they don't provide the fruit of God's desire. I want to look at just a couple of these, a couple of passages from one of the prophets in Jeremiah. The, the parable Jesus talks about sending servants to collect his fruit. And what he's referring to throughout the Old Testament, God would send prophets to call the people of Israel back to faithful relationship with God. You remember some of the names of the prophets. You have Elisha and you have Elijah. That's confusing. You have Jeremiah, you have Isaiah, you've got lots of different prophets, and their job was to go and tell the people of Israel, return to God. And of course, whenever the prophet would show up and say, hey, you ought to return to God, what would the people do? Sometimes they would return to God, at least for a short time. Other times they would beat the guy up, kill him, maybe throw him in a cistern. Lots of different things. Throw him in a lion's den, I suppose, is one thing that happened to Daniel. So let's look at a couple of things that Jeremiah says. This is an in Jeremiah chapter, uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 25. Listen to how Jeremiah describes the relationship of God's people with God, this vineyard. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day. So he just gave you a timeline. From the day he came out of Egypt, when was that? Oh, about 1500 B.C., to this day. That's Jeremiah's day. When is that? About a thousand years later. People of Judah are getting ready to be taken captive by the Babylonians, and so a thousand years have gone by. So Jeremiah says, from the day you came out of Egypt, you know, a thousand years ago, until today. Here, here's how he would describe their relationship with God. I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So there's Jeremiah describing the very same thing that Jesus is describing in his parable. For a thousand years, the people of Israel have stiffened their neck to the correction of God, and instead of providing God his fruit, his return, a loving relationship devoted to God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Instead, they would stiffen their necks and refused obedience to God. This is the history of God's people. To seek God's blessing without seeking God. That's when the people of God aren't the people of God. When they want God's covenant promises. They want God's covenant blessing, but man, he is such a load to carry around. There's any way we could have the, enjoy the blessings of God without the God, that's what we would like to do. And that's when the people of God aren't the people of God. A little bit later, Jeremiah says this. This is Jeremiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 16. What's going on here in Jeremiah 44? Let me get you up to speed. 
They're in Egypt. Why are they in Egypt? The Babylonians had invaded, taken a bunch of people captive, and the Babylonians had put a guy in charge, a governor. His name was Gedaliah. Gedaliah was a good guy. And here's what he said. Listen, let's just chill. Babylonians took over, but you know what? God says right now we're supposed to just obey the Babylonians, do this for 70 years, we're good to go. And so another guy named Ishmael, different Ishmael, there's lots of Ishmaels, Another guy named Ishmael, who happened to also be of the royal line, also known as he wishes he was in charge, murdered Gedaliah and then fled to the Assyrians. Everybody freaks out. They think, once the Babylonians here were basically having another civil war, they're going to come back and destroy everybody that's left. So do you know what we ought to do? We should go to Egypt where we won't die. That seems smart. If you were a planner to avoid death, this would be a smart thing to do. So what these little group of people did that was left, they came to Jeremiah, and this is what they said. Have you heard this story before? Uh, here we go. I'll pre pretend like you've never heard it. They go, Jeremiah, will you seek the Lord for us? We have a question for you, and we promise, we promise, we promise, whatever the Lord says, we promise to do. Serious. Peaky promise. They said that. It's in the Hebrew. And they want to know, should we go to Egypt, where we won't die and we'll be safe, we'll have lots of food, or should we stay here where we will die and starve to death? Which one do you think God wants us to do, Jeremiah? Okay. So Jeremiah goes away and prays for 10 days. What's number one, first funny thing about this story, did they need Jeremiah to seek the Lord? No. God had told them when they left Egypt, no matter what happens, don't go back to Egypt. So we haven't got to the application part yet, but let's start. Let's start with application. If you're praying for, to God for wisdom about stuff his Bible tells you, you're trying to figure out how not to be obedient. When the Bible's clear, you don't need to pray about it. He already gave you his message. And that's what these folks were doing. Well, sure, he said not to go to Egypt, but certainly this might be the one exception. So Jeremiah, go pray and ask God if we should go back to Egypt. And I don't even know what Jeremiah was doing. I know it involved an eye roll. Are you serious? What else? So he goes and he prays for 10 days and comes back and says, uh, stay here. So they kidnap Jeremiah and take him to Egypt. That's how that goes. They're now in Egypt. Jeremiah 44, verse 16. Jeremiah says this, or they said this to Jeremiah. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. We will do everything that we have vowed make offerings to the queen of heaven, that's a demonic cult, pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings, our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then, that is when they were worshiping the queen of heaven, for then we had plenty of food and we prospered, we saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? So here's their theological argument. When we worship God, everything terrible happens. When we worship the queen of heaven, 
things go really, really well. So what we're going to do, we don't care what's true or right. We know what gets the job done. And worshiping the queen of heaven gets the job done. So that's what we're going to do. That was their answer. And this is the answer, not just of these individuals. This is the answer of the, the human heart ruined by sin. We like the idea of God as long as when the God lever gets pulled, it cranks out that which we want. And as soon as pulling the God lever doesn't give us what we want, we'll just look for another lever. And that's, the, that's not just the people of Israel problem. That's not just the people of Jeremiah's day problem or the people of Jesus problem. That's a if you have been born problem. We want God to be a vending machine that produces for us predictable outcomes. And God says, I want the fruit of my vineyard, which is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus is saying in his parable. I have sent you uh, prophets to tell you, just pursue the Lord. And the answer is always the same. We'll pursue the Lord when it pays off. And when it doesn't pay off, no thank you. Let's look at some of these other prophets, if you don't mind. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a long description of people who demonstrated faith. These weren't perfect people. They were sinners who trusted God. And this last section is one of my favorite sections of Hebrews. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. The good part ends there. Are you ready? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains in the dens and caves of the earth. These were people who, they said, we will seek the Lord. We will seek the Lord. If they, if they saw me in half, they saw me in half. If they, if they flogged me, they flogged me. I'm not seeking the Lord so that I can have his stuff. I'm seeking the Lord because he was kind enough to give me himself. And these were the, what these prophets were saying. And what the, the author of Hebrews tells us is the world wasn't worthy of these. These were people who understand to be a person of the Lord is to seek primarily the Lord. That is the fruit God seeks in his vineyard, in his people, is a people fully devoted to him, moved in their heart to worship God and God alone because he is worth being worshipped. It gets worse. The people of Israel didn't just merely reject these prophets, did they? Go back to the parable. Have you forgotten we were in a parable today? Luke chapter 20. Verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? 
I will send my beloved son. Now, first of all, this is a parable. Jesus is illustrating realities using story. God, was not con- God wasn't confused. He wasn't in heaven pacing about, oh, what am I going to do? He wasn't, that wasn't God. He's using story to illustrate a point. We understand this, right? Because Jesus had planned to come to the earth since be- before the creation of the world, according to Ephesus. So um, God isn't confused here. What should I do? I'll send my son. Perhaps they will respect him. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let's kill him. Then the inheritance will be ours. So if rejecting the, the prophets was, was wrong, here now we have Jesus saying, rejecting the son is worse. Not only do they reject the son, they kill him, hoping to own the vineyards themselves. This is how Jesus is described in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 3, Beginning in verse 21, it's Jesus being baptized. When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So what we discover here is this son in the parable is who? It's Jesus, has now been sent to the people to collect the, the rent, the, the worship, the devotion. When Jesus went up onto the mount with Peter, James, and John in Luke chapter 9, beginning verse 28, this cloud descended on them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them. And this is the voice that came out of this cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So this is the, the son who has come to his people to collect the fruit that God is hoping for, the worship of his people, and this son is the one they are going to reject. Go back to the parable if if you've uh, turned somewhere else. Listen to what he says. Let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? That's a fair question. To kill the son, what will the owner do? So first of all, we recognize there will be a day of accountability. It's not the day of the murder. We don't know when that day is, but the Lord says there will be a day when you will have to uh, give an account for what you have done in regard to the son. And so a day comes, the owner shows up. And, and what would that owner do? If you were the owner of the vineyard and you had sent your son to collect rent and they had killed him, what would you do? I know what I would do. I would kill him nice and slow. I mean, serious. You killed my son. I'm not going to do you the honor of killing you quick. I'm going to make you. I'm going to make it hurt for a while. There would be a. Wouldn't there be a, a rightful wrath that desires justice? Wouldn't there be? It, it, I, I can't tell if you're on board. If somebody wrongfully killed your child, wouldn't you not be filled with anger, anticipating that that there ought to be justice done? And how can justice be done? How can justice be done? And, and we get so wound up that God gets mad sometimes. We killed his son. What do you, how do you expect him to respond? And so he comes, and a day, in a, a day of account comes, and he says, I will destroy those tenants, those who have rejected the son, and I will give the vineyard to others. Who are the others? What's Luke all about? I think it's on the screen. What's it say? 
outsiders become insiders. Because remember, Luke is written primarily to the Gentiles. And here Jesus is saying, the, the people of God have rejected the Son. God will have his people. God will have his vineyard. And so if this vineyard has rejected it, God will establish his vineyard by his Son, and this will be given to others. That means anyone who receives the Son is the vineyard. Anyone who receives the Son. Now all of a sudden all the Gentiles are going, oh, we can be the vineyard. Look how the people respond. When they heard this, they said, surely not. He had some good Jewish people in the crowd. Because here you have the Son of God standing here saying, oh, you want to reject God? Fine. We'll just do it with the Gentiles. Here's one thing you've got to remember. We're back to application. Sorry. And by sorry, I'm not. If you're not regularly reading the words of Jesus and going, surely not, then you're not reading it right. Because he's supposed to rattle your cage. That's the whole point. He shows up and calls you out of death into life. And Jesus says to the people of Israel, oh, you want to reject the Son? Fine. The people who receive the Son are the vineyard. And the people are shocked. And, and Jesus responds with this scripture from Psalms 118. He said, listen, if you think the vineyard isn't going to reject the Son, then why did the psalmist say in Psalm 118, the stone the builders have rejected has been the, become the chief cornerstone? Jesus is saying, my being established as the King of kings and Lord of lords is not dependent on the people of Israel accepting me. It's dependent on me being the son, and those who will have me will be mine. And everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The people of Israel had to come to terms with the fact Jesus was not coming to try to win them over. He was coming to find out, will you have me by faith and be a part of my people, or will you not? And all who will have me by faith will be my people. Any who would have me will be my people. The cornerstone scripture in Psalm 18 and the way Jesus interprets it for us here reminds us that being of the people of God is not an ethnic issue. It's not a gene genealogical issue. Rather, being of the people of God is a covenant of God issue. People of God are those who trust Jesus. So it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you were raised in church or not raised in church. It doesn't matter if you made all the right decisions when you were younger or you made all the wrong decisions when you were younger. It doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what your political persuasion is. It doesn't matter what you like to watch on TV. What matters as to whether or not you are of the people of God? Do you trust Jesus? That's it. And as long as the people of God are defined by anything other than that, they're finding their identity in things other than what we are. We are the people of the Son. We are people who trust Jesus for forgiveness. All other identities fall under that or are subservient to that. That's the thing. It's not where we come from. It's not the values we were raised with. It's not our ethnic background. It's not our political persuasions. It's not how we view politics. It's not how we think children ought to be educated. It's not how we think people ought to dress or how fast you should drive in the left lane above the speed limit. What are the people of God? 
trusting Jesus people, trusting the Son kinds of people. And when the people of God aren't the people of God, is when we want all of God's kinds of things without trusting Jesus. That part is we're not so interested in. And that's where the people of Israel got themselves into trouble, and that's where we do as well. When the people of God aren't, when we want God's stuff, but we don't really want God. Now, here's what's great. We don't just use God to try to get his stuff. We also try to use God so we can be in control, too. Let's look at verses 19 through 26. Let me read it. Do you mind? The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Why? Because he just told a parable. It made him look really, really bad. They perceived that he had told the parable against them. Really, Einstein? But they feared the people. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him a political question. When you want to get somebody in trouble, you ask him a political question. Isn't that the way to do it? Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. That's what we call flattery. They are not being genuine here. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he, that is Jesus, perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Verse 26, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. When the people of God aren't, when they want God's authority, but not God. I want to mention a couple of verses that are favorites for lots of different people. Here's a favorite verse for parents. Are you ready? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Parents love this verse. We wish our kids would love it. A favorite verse for spouses, love is patient. So you need to be more patient with me. I really want Jesus to be worked out in your life. So I'm going to need you to work on the patience with me. I really feel like you being so impatient with me reflects maybe a problem in your spiritual life. And you think I'm being weird. No, this, these things have been said. Some of you are saying, yeah, this is... You shouldn't be taking notes right now. Some of you guys are feverish. These are brilliant. Another favorite verse. Forgive someone who wrongs you seven times, 70 times, 77 times. So therefore, I can be a total doofus, and you just got to keep forgiving me. I love this. I love these verses. Do unto others as you would... Have them do unto you. And you say, I'm an other. You should be doing unto me the way you should be treating, want to be treated. Here's another. We love the turn the cheek thing. So we can be, again, doofuses. And we can remind people, you, no, you shouldn't seek revenge. We can wrong people. We can steal from them. We can lead them astray and uh, call them into uh, strange financial arrangements and take advantage of them and cause property damage and then say, you know, uh, in the in in the church, you know, in the people of God, we don't we don't sue one another. And so sorry, my bad. 
We love these verses because what we want to do is we want to take the authority and truth of God and use it to what? Control others. That's what we want to do. Uh, that's, this is when the people of God aren't the people of God or aren't acting like it. When we want to take the, the, the truth of what God says and, and the authority of what we think God is into and use it to control others. We prefer it when God tells the world and others to do things the way we prefer. We love it when God and his word can be used to tell other people how to behave to make our lives more convenient, to make our lives less disturbed. God tells us to do things we don't like, and so what we want to do is tell other people to do things they don't like, especially when doing those things makes our life a little bit easier. So these scribes are coming, and they want to try and use the authority of God to paint Jesus into a corner to confirm that things must be the way they want. The scribes and the chief priests are going to come. They want to get him arrested. They want to use the truth of God's word to get Jesus arrested. Because the, the quandary is, if he says that people shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, the governor is going to have a problem with that, and he's going to get himself arrested. Of course, if he says they should pay taxes to Caesar, all the religious people are going to freak out because he, he, he presumes to be a, a rabbi of Israel. So they want to paint him into a corner, use the truth of God's word to force him and to force others to do their bidding. It's not mentioned here in the Luke passage. In Matthew, uh, Matthew reminds us that the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests, they went with another group of people, the Herodians. So they all got together. One thing that will bring groups that hate each other together is a common enemy. So you've got these groups who normally would never spend any time together. They all want to come together to corner Jesus, these Herodians, these people who are loyal uh, to the Roman authority. They want to use God's authority in order to maintain the status quo, them being in charge, them having control over people's lives. And so they say, should, should people pay taxes to Caesar? or not. Jesus perceived their craftiness. Now, Jesus is God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he could read their minds, but also the four-year-old could perceive their craftiness. This was not a complicated thing to figure out. I think you guys are up to something. The Herodians have showed up with the scribes. Something is afoot. So he says to them, show me a denarius. So what'd they do? This is hilarious. They give him a denarius. What did Seth mention in his message last week? What did you have to do when you went to the temple? You had to change your money because the people of Israel didn't like money with people's images on it. It was an idol. So he says, show me a denarius. One of the guys goes, oh, yeah, I got one. What did they just admit? You already, we already know you've got bad motives because you're carrying a denarius. That's why he didn't say, oh, you know, is there a Caesar on the denarius or not? He said, show me a denarius. So one of these scribes had to reach into his pocket or his money bag or show him on his Venmo. I don't know what he had. And he pulls out a denarius. Oh, I got one right here. And then everybody just, wait a second. We're not supposed to have one of those. But Jesus doesn't let on. No, it's fine. You can sink your own ship. He'll let you do that. Whose inscription is on it? It's Caesar's. But you can't trap Jesus. In his fine, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God. That's not that complicated. Whatever belongs to Caesar, you should give that to him. Whatever belonged to God, you should, you should give that to him. So he, he won't play their political games. He won't allow them 
to use their sense of understanding of the Scripture to control him, and he wants them to know they can't control others through their understanding of the Scripture. Jesus is the one who understands actual authority. In John 19, Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate says, don't you understand I have the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus understands authority. Pilate had authority over Jesus in that moment. Why? Because God had put it, given him the authority. Because Jesus planned to go to the cross. And so let's give Pilate the authority to authorize the crucifixion. That's no big deal. It's just God using a Pilate's authority that God gave him to get his, his job done. In Romans 13.1, we read a, a similar thing from the Apostle Paul. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. There is no authority except God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the people of Israel during Jesus' day, they want to play political games to control others. And Jesus says, no, just understand who's in charge. God's in charge. And then he also provides some authority to others as a means of glorifying himself sometimes to governing authorities and sometimes to others. He'll pay to Caesar what's Caesar's and, and pay to God's what is God's. The issue is their motive. Look back in verse 19 of Luke 20. Verse 19 of Luke 20. They perceived that Jesus had told this parable against them, but they, what? Feared the people. See, the religious leaders were always evaluating how are we going to be able to keep things the way we want them? What do we need to do to make sure people are corralled? What do, we, what do we need to do to maintain a sense of control here? Because we know the way things ought to be. And they had a sense of fear and anxiety and worry. If things get out of line, we're going to lose control and things aren't going to be the way that we perceive they ought to be. And there was a great threat to their control. And who was that threat? It was Jesus. If you have access to God himself, what do you need a priest for at the temple? You don't. If you have access to God yourself, you don't need a priest. You don't need a temple. You don't need to take a sheep. So everything Jesus was doing threatened what they thought ought to be. They wanted to use God's truth. They wanted to use God's word. They wanted to use people's view of religion in order to control them in a way that they thought was appropriate. And this is when God's people aren't. When they use God's authority, but they have no interest in God himself. Jesus isn't flattered by them. He doesn't, isn't seeking their approval. Jesus also is not afraid of the people. In fact, here, as with every moment of his entire life, he is in complete control. Jesus does everything he needs to do, not to maintain control, but in order to do the will of the Father. The people of uh, Israel's authorities, they want to maintain control to, to ensure their safety and to ensure the way their life is and the way they want it. Jesus maintains control because he was God, intending to go to be a sacrifice not to avoid sacrifice. Jesus has control in order to serve others. The religious leaders sought control in order to serve themselves. When the people of God aren't, when we 
seek to have God's authority, but have no interest in a relationship with God himself. All right, a couple of thoughts I wanted to close with about these two things. When the people of God aren't. When we want God's promises, but not God. When we want God's authority, but not God. Here's a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Why, why do we do um, devotions? I don't know if you do devotions. I hope you do. Get up in the morning or in the evening or afternoon, whenever you like to do it. Read your Bible, pray. Is that a thing you do? I hope you do. If not, give it a shot. It's good for you. Why do that? I don't know if you know this, but a personal quiet time or personal devotions is not a good luck charm. Do you have a, do you have a good luck charm? I don't know if you do. They're useless. But maybe a rabbit's foot or a lucky rock or a stone. I don't know. You rub on it. And maybe you got a lucky left ankle. You rub on it. And good luck happens. So devotions, uh, seeking the Lord in prayer and his word is not a good luck charm. So why in the world would we pray and read the Bible? Because you need a nap. Some of you, you know prayer time. Close your eyes and immediately you have, your prayer language is, that sounds something like snoring. The primary reason we pray and read the Bible, this will blow your mind. It won't, but here we go. We get to talk to God. That's it. We pray, the primary reason we pray is we get to talk to God. And the reason we read the Bible is because we get to find out something about God. The privilege of doing a quiet time or doing devotions is we get to talk to God whenever we want, and whenever we want, open his word and learn something about him. That means a, a quiet time, a devotion, the entire focus of that is what? God. That's a love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. However, now I know there's no one here who would do this. Have you ever done devotions because you need something? It got really quiet. Okay. So something big has happened. A big bill is coming in or a doctor's test or something. Okay, boy, I need something. Kid's gone off the rails, whatever it is. Now I need something. Okay, so you sit down and go, I got to get this devotion knocked out because I know I got to get this thing knocked out so I can get to the part that I really care about. I need God to show up in this particular area. Have you ever done this before? We all have. Come on, let's own it. Let me give you a hint. Just do it up front. He knows what you're thinking about. I, I would do it this way. Here's my tip. Lord, skipping devotions today, I'm just going to ask you for stuff because I'm not going to pretend. Let's not play pretend. Just get that up front. Lord, here's what I need. Show up in this way and then seek him in prayer and seek him in his word. Jesus knows your heart. He knows the stuff we need and the things we desire. And we should just be upfront with him about that. But here's what we should do when we're seeking the Lord in prayer and his word, is our desire should be to primarily make that a time where we get to connect with our God. That's the goal there. Not to get him to show up. If I do my devotions, I pull the God lever, and the God vending machine produces that which I want. Instead, what God is looking forward to is an opportunity to spend time with us as we seek him in prayer. We spend time with God to know more about him, to experience him, to have him by his spirit show us stuff in our heart that shouldn't be, and we can bring repentance and confession to him. Our goal would be as we spend time with the Lord in prayer over time that we become more and more like Jesus. That's the fruit of the harvest in our life, is Jesus showing up in our heart. All right, when the people of God aren't, when we want God's promises but not God. Second thing, and I only have a dozen things. 
I was checking to see if I beat Seth. He didn't. He got done before me last week. You win. You win. Motives matter. I'm not. Let me let me think how to say this in a way that'll be most offensive. Um. Many people want our culture to return to its Christian roots. Is that a right? That's okay. That's a good thing. I'd love it if everybody was Christian. Wouldn't it be fantastic? Many of us want our culture to return to its Christian roots. Here's what I want you to ask yourself. Why? Why do you want your culture to return to its Christian roots? Is it so that the people around you will finally behave in a way that won't annoy you? You want your culture to return to its Christian roots because you find your culture annoying. Or some of the people in your culture bothersome. Or the way other people sin, you find um, offensive. There's some ways people sin that doesn't bother us so much, but there's other ways people sin that we find offensive. And so what we want is we want the culture to return to its Christian roots. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why is it? Do we want the people around us to be less annoying, or do we actually want people around us to experience God? How do you figure out what your motive is? Here, I'll give you a, a test. What do you feel when you look at the culture around you? Think about your emotions. Do you feel fear, anxiety, frustration, or anger? Turn on the news, or you walk through your city, and you feel fear, anxiety, frustration, or anger. This might reveal that the brokenness of the world around us is a major inconvenience. Because I feel fear and frightened, and I'm worried about the future. Look at, think about what you know about Jesus. How did he respond to the broken culture around him? What was his primary response to a culture that had abandoned God? Remember, his prophet Jeremiah had said, the culture had abandoned God for how long? A thousand years. And that was 500 years before Jesus. So what was Jesus' primary response to the culture that had abandoned him? Sadness. It was tears. It was grieving. Not because of what it did to him. He knew what it was going to do to him. What was a culture that had abandoned him going to do to him? It was going to kill him. And he knew that. And that's what he signed up for. He wasn't worried about what it was going to do to him. That's what he came for. He knew a culture that had abandoned him would lead to his death, his voluntary death. He had sadness because he saw sinners that had picked the lesser thing. They had picked the thing that would never satisfy and abandoned the one who would always satisfy. And his heart was broken for that. But when did Jesus express anger and frustration? When he confronted religious people who were using God's name to control people because they wanted a culture that was less inconvenient. We need to let that inform us. The religious leaders were anxious and fearful and angry because the culture had abandoned its biblical roots and now was following Rome. And they wanted to get that culture back to its original state. Why? Because it assured their power and assured their comfort and fewer sinners inconveniencing them. And Jesus shows up and his, his heart's broken. Not because something's wrong with this country, something was. Something was wrong with the people. They had chosen sin over their Savior, and his heart grieved for them. Motives matter. I, I hope, along with you, that we want our, the people of our country and even our world to find salvation in Jesus, but I pray our motives would be right. It's not so 
things could be the way we want them. We want people to find Jesus so things are the way he wants them. All right, last thing. You say, gee, how many is there? How many did I say? A dozen? This is the last one. Unless I think of something else, then it won't be. What does Jesus do for us? Remember, what does Jesus do for us? Number one, the primary thing, he gives us access and relationship to God himself, doesn't he? Jesus, by his sacrifice, cleanses us by his blood. So now having the righteousness of Jesus, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 tells us, we can boldly enter the throne room of grace through the curtain, which is the torn, blood, uh, the torn body of Jesus. So we walk through Jesus' broken body into the throne room of grace so we can talk to God whenever we want. Is that enough for you in your Christian life? I think this is worth thinking about. When we, this is evaluating whether or not we want God or just his stuff. If, if all you got for your entire Christian life was, was only access to God and he never answered any of your other prayers, would you be okay with your Christian life? There's a guy in the Bible this happened to. Do you remember him? He was next to Jesus on a cross, and his entire Christian life was spent crucified. Thankfully for him, his Christian life wasn't that long, a few hours. Jesus only answered one of his prayers. What was his one prayer? Remember me. Remember me. And Jesus said what? You got it. I don't know what else he prayed. If I was on a cross, I'd be praying lots of stuff. But Jesus only answered one of his prayers for his entire Christian life. So now I pray that that would not be the case for any of us. But think about this is how you evaluate the motive of your heart. If all God gave you was himself, is that enough for you to follow Jesus for your life? Think about your marriage, raising children, work, friendships. These are all things we want God to, to bless. We want God to bless our marriages and our, and our parenting and our employment and our friendships and God to bless our generosity as well as our volunteering. And, and actually, any study you look at shows that God does bless these things, doesn't he? God, following God when it comes to uh, marriage and parenting and work actually provides fantastic blessing over time. And so these things do have, happen. The primary thing we must desire in our Christian life is God himself. This is the mistake that Adam and Eve made, is forgetting that God was the one they needed. Instead of pursuing God who made the garden, they pursued the garden God had made. That's what they wanted. Why did God make the garden? Ever thought about that? Why did God make the garden? Was he out of vegetables? What did God do after they sinned? He came. He was walking in the cool of the day. And he said, where are you guys at? Why did he call out to them? Because they weren't there. He was used to them being there. So why did God make a garden? So we'd have a place to walk with Adam and Eve. So God makes this beautiful garden. So we'd have a place to walk with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve think, you know be great about this garden? As if God would stop showing up. And that's, what, that's where we need to look at our own hearts. Look at the garden of my life. Do I want the garden, or do I want the God who made it? That's what Jesus is getting at. People of God, we aren't acting like Jesus-y kind of people 
when we want God's garden without the God in it. Jesus, he kind of people, having his image worked out in our soul, we say, you know what, you can have the garden all day long, as long as I get God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the fruit of following Christ. Jesus, we thank you for being here with us today. We thank you for the mercy you have shown us by dying on the cross for people like us. God, we confess in these moments the reality that so much of our life you have been playing second fiddle at best. Father, our prayer in this moment would be that you would, by your spirit, show us what it looks like in our life to be people of God. Not people of your stuff, but people of you. Who seek you first. Seek your kingdom first. That we're not pursuing you for your stuff and we're not pursuing you to have a means to have control or power over others. That, Lord, you would give us such a desire to have a relationship with you that we would be, would be satisfied with you alone. Father, I pray for those who are here today who don't know you. My prayer is that in this moment you would open their eyes to the emptiness of this world and they would recognize their need for salvation in Christ alone that you save all who come to you by faith. God, we thank you for your love and mercy you have shown us in Jesus. We pray that you would give us diligence until the very end, hearts that pursue you, and a willingness to endure whatever may come. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song?